I'd like to start off today by asking you a little bit about your childhood. How did you hear about this project? What is your earliest memory? What did you have for breakfast, just to test the level? Hello, and welcome to episode two of the National Life Stories podcast. I'm David Govier, the oral history archivist at the British Library. We'll be using this podcast to try to get to the bottom of what we think is special about the life story approach to oral history, and of course, playing lots of interview extracts. This year, we celebrated our 30th birthday by highlighting in our annual review standout interviews from each of our main fieldwork projects. Dr. Tom Lean wrote about an oral history of the UK electricity supply industry, or to give it its snappier title, The Life Electric. This was an oral history project which documents the lives of those involved in the electricity supply industry in the 20th century, a time of huge change for the industry. For our second episode, Tom takes us back to the 1950s, when Granville Camsey was about to become an apprentice. I was brought up with two sisters and my mother in a little middle cottage. Uh, my father had become exceedingly ill when I was a wee toddler and was hospitalised forever. And my two sisters, who were older than me, had to go into the mill when they were 12 and 13 to work. And when I, by the time I was uh, 15, the school age had moved from 14 to 16. And I can remember my mother saying, you are not going in the mill. Hi, Tom. Hi, Dave. For the Annual Review 2017, we were all asked to choose an interview that typified the collections that we had worked on. You know, something that was interesting in its own right, but also interesting as a snapshot into the wider collection it was actually drawn from. And in my case, I chose to go with an interview from a chap called Granville Camsey. And Granville was a very interesting person. He had sort of worked his entire career in the electricity industry. Um, he had joined as an apprentice in Lancashire back in the 1950s and had basically worked his way up. And I got more than one offer. But the reason I was sent to be an apprentice at the power station was my mother was a weaver and next door there was a lady called Mrs Ashcroft and she was a weaver and her son had already gone to the power station to work the year before it was my turn and Ray Ashcroft had told his mother that you got free overalls. And Mrs. Ashcroft told my mother, send your lad to the power station to give him overalls. So I actually went to a power station because I was given pairs of overalls. He'd been a fitter, he'd been a power station manager. Eventually he rose to a very senior position in the industry. And it's interesting, I guess it's one of the stories that comes out of the electricity industry interviews quite a lot is the way that the industry took these people in as teenagers and developed them, you know, gave them loads of opportunities to advance, develop um, and become senior figures. I wanted an interview that sort of reflected that. Norman Fox, he was, turned out to be the father I never had, did Norman Fox. And Norman Fox on one occasion said, Granville, come with me into Birmingham. Uh, I always buy my clothes from Hector Powers. Hector Powers was a Savile Row tailor that had 
a, a shop in Birmingham. And my word, I was impressed. And I learned from Norman Fox that quality clothes were a highly desirable thing. Uh, I, I, funny where you pick up these messages from. Uh, and I became a snazzy dresser, you might say. Uh, and of course, in, in the financial world, in the city, in privatisation, in Hong Kong, you'd better dress the part, hadn't you? And I always have. So I started by being very proud of my overalls, and I finished up as an executive being quite, uh, what's the word, comfortable in quality tailoring. Looking back at the time in the 1950s, it was an industry that was growing enormously. Um, you know, lots of people didn't have electricity in their homes. Uh, the industry was expanding enormously around the country. New power stations were being built. The national grid was being seriously upgraded. Lots of people were getting power in their homes for the very first time. New sort of electrical appliances were coming in. This is an industry that was really sort of booming in the 1950s. And if you joined, I guess, the power industry and, and you're a likely looking lad who's got a bit of promise about him, it was a place of enormous opportunity. So I think in the case of Granville, you know, he started off as a craft apprentice, moved up to being a graduate apprentice, was essentially given a university level education by the industry, um, became a specialist in nuclear power, and from there went on to become, I guess, a power station manager. And it's interesting, I guess, the pride that people who had served in these power stations actually had for what they did. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Of course, you can't store electricity very much. You can store little bits in batteries, but you have to make it as it is needed. And so you needed a dynamic minute-by-minute -minute process where you could bid the price of your manufacture into the marketplace. You either sold it or didn't. And if you didn't sell it, you didn't run. And of course, we have been brought up, the men had all been brought up to keep the lights on. You never shut down unless it broke. Some of my guys did some amazing things. There's a man called Peter Milner, who was my strategic and planning director. And Peter almost single-handedly went to the marketplace Found Anderson Consulting, designed the bidding process. So we had to take all the blue collar workers through this point of understanding that if you ain't got a customer, you're dead. And I guess one of the other sort of reasons I chose these particular little clips is because, to some extent, they tell you a little bit about the value of the Life Story interview. Granville, for instance, talks for you know, how he felt about the industry giving him all these wonderful opportunities and entering an industry that was, at the time, you know, owned by the government, very much heavily unionised. But the good side of that was that there were lots of benefits for the people who were working within it. The bad side of that was, from the manager's point of view, it really constrained what they actually could do. 
And that's, I think, one of the benefits you get from the Life Story interview. You don't just get this little narrow snapshot of a particular time and place. You get this broad sweep of issues, this ability to contrast and compare different time periods across a particular person's life. I see. I wave my arms around a lot when I'm doing this, don't I? Yeah, you do, yeah. Oh, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> as long as you're not knocking the mic, that's fine. The Thameside power stations had always been heavily left-wing. The Thameside power stations were exceedingly difficult. I had appointed as a director of the Thameside stations a man called Norman Holland. He, had, he knew them all, he knew the difficulties, and he was, a, he was six foot two, I think, and that was wide. He was a big man. He'd had a very difficult station to run and done it very well. And he absolutely was a godsend. And it was Norman who said, let's go down. And so I said, right, we will. And I can remember, when I read the riot act. I said, we've had enough. If you don't help the station manager, we're closing it. And I'd stepped off the platform. It was in the canteen and there was a little platform. Three guys came up to me, and they were quite young men. And they'd come, as it were, en masse. And one of them said, we're all willing to help. But the shop stewards will take us round the back of the workshop and duff us up if we don't toe the line. Norman marched in, and it's still running. It's a little nugget. And that's decades on. There were a lot of... Issues like that, it was one thing to uh, project the change, project the strategy, you had to give the freedom, but you then had to tackle the underlying issues. Is there anything else that you would have included in here that you didn't have space for? Is there any other bits that really jumped out at you from, um, from the whole interview? Granville's interview that you remember? The whole interview is about 18 hours long. Right. Um, and bear in mind, that's an 18-hour interview out of a project of interviews that are of similar sorts of length. So there's over 500 hours worth of interview here I could have selected about half a page worth of quote from. And I mean, the, the collection as a whole is littered with interesting stories. <laughs> and I guess, again, that's one of the real nice things about doing interviews at this sort of length. You're not going in there to get something specific and targeted. You're finding all these interesting things just bubbling out and you have the sort of the length of time and the wideness of scope to actually be able to discuss some of those without having, I guess, without having the overall aim of a particular research question behind them. You know, it's much more general. You're trying almost to picture all the sorts of things that all the sorts of potential users might want to know about in the future and try and cover a little bit of all of them, which is clearly absolutely impossible, but <laughs> we do the best job we can in the time we have available. Yeah, wow. And how did you recruit your interviewees as part of this process? Recruiting interviewees, so who actually gets interviewed, is a constantly baffling process <laughs> um, because there are so many different things involved. You know, there's never sort of one reason why you'll go and interview somebody. Um, right at the beginning, we've got an idea of what our projects like would like to look like. In the case of the electricity industry, 
we had an idea that we wanted to record people who'd worked in a wide variety of different jobs and at a wide variety of different levels. And when you go through the historical literature, there are the starts of that start bubbling out. You know, you start seeing names here and there in the existing history books. You read around through the newspapers. You do a little bit of archival research, possibly. And gradually, you sort of start fitting them into your, your big plan of what this project looks like. Um, so there's that aspect to it. But there's also, I guess, the sort of personal recommendation aspect as well. So in the case of the electricity project, there is a essentially advisory committee comprised of former electricity industry people um, who were able to sort of lend us some personal recommendations. So we've kind of got that inside track there as well. Also, I guess in a lot of cases, people will recommend people, um, particularly sort of people who you may not have found through other means. Uh, people whose names are lost to history. Um, it doesn't happen so much on the electricity project, but when I was working on the science project, this is basically how we found people like lab technicians. You go and interview the scientists, and they say, oh, you should go and talk to Barry or Frank or whoever was my lab technician. And you think, oh, okay, maybe. And you sort of gradually sort of build up, I guess, a wider network of potential interviewees from the research you're doing and the people you've already talked to. I think oral historians sometimes call it snowballing, you uh -huh. know, the idea that you chuck a snowball down a mountain and it's a little snowball and it starts picking up more snow as it rolls down. Well, it's a bit like that, but we're sort of chucking 80-year-olds down the mountain and they're picking up more 80-year-olds <laughs> as they're going down. <laughs> I was very proud of our intellectual property, of our capability. After all, we just demonstrated, hey, we can build power station to time and to price. Who's heard of that? There's nobody doing that. What an accolade. Uh, I, I promise you, it wasn't all sweetness and light. Uh, I mean, I can remember when we were privatised, the biggest capital spend was on Drax. Drax was the biggest coal-fired power station in the world. It was 4 by 660 megawatt units. It was just towards the end of its construction when I came back from Hong Kong, but under the environmental pressure that had been around for about 10 years, we had to retrofit and we had started to retrofit a flue gas, the chimney gases cleanup plant. In fact, this cleanup plant cost more than the station had. It was £680 million. But there was this damn great flue gas desulfurisation plant. You, you took the sulphur out of the chimney smoke, and the way you did it was with lime. And that means you finished up, when you cleaned it, with a lot of calcium carbonate, which is the stuff that plasterboard is made out of. So we said, well, why can't we? I mean, this is what privatisation is about. You know, what an opportunity. Let us make plasterboard. Uh, did a negotiation. And we sold all this plasterboard material to British Plasterboard on a long-term contract. So that when we clean up the gas, instead of having a waste product that you buried in all in ground, you sold it and they made plasterboard out of it. So what happens next then? I think you're coming towards the end of the electricity project. I sit there in 
old engineers' houses, taking down their memories onto a little recorder. I mean, I then sort of deposit them with the archivists at the British Library, and it gets sucked into this fascinating archive process that I, I to be honest, have never completely understood. Oh, really? I guess from my point of view, it's sort of this giant electronic hole in the ground where stuff is stored forever. I mean, I literally go out and tell interviewees, I'm going to put you onto the shelf next to the Magna Carta, <laughs> which essentially is what we are doing. You know, we are sort of preserving stuff for the long term. And as part of that, you know, there is documentation to be collected. The, the interviews all have detailed content summaries, which give you a little guide as to what their contents are. We'll collect photos from people as well. Um, along the way, we'll also do, I guess, a few outreach sort of activities. Uh, in the case of the Electricity Project, we're having a really interesting looking event on October 19th, where we'll bring together a few of our interviewees into a discussion at the British Library, really to sort of commemorate the end of the project. Thank you very much, Tom. That's all right, Dave. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss today before we go to the pub? When you put it like that. <laughs> no, not really. Thanks for listening to the National Life Stories podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the Life Electric event at the British Library on the 19th of October, visit bl.uk forward slash events. You can listen to many of the electricity interviews on sounds.bl. UK. And look out for the next episode of our podcast. How have you found the process of this interview? I was wondering how you've actually found doing this interview. I think we've covered that period of work. Is there anything you would like to add? Full stop. <laughs> <laughs>